0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with Jesus. We come to you boldly, making our petition and our requests made known to you through your Son. We ask, O Lord, for you to open up our hearts and our minds that we might receive from you this morning. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great differences between a child and adult is how they see themselves. An adult will have a greater sense of personal identity than a child, won't they? Our gospel reading this morning draws special attention to who we are. Jesus' words offer us a growing up moment so that we might leave our childish ignorance behind and learn who we truly are. And so, who are we? Can we be a good father? a good wife, a good person. Can we flourish in our careers and in our homes? Can we be who we are supposed to be? Who we are meant to be? Hardly a day goes by that we don't ask ourselves this question. Do we have what it takes? Jesus knows our turmoil. He knows our weaknesses. He knows who we are. And fortunate for us, he has something to say about it. So, what does he have to say? If you have your Bibles or your service booklets, I invite you to open them to the Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 5. And we will be looking at verses 13 to 20. But first, let's revisit the scene that we observed last week. First, there is a great mixed crowd following Jesus. There's much excitement in the air. People are beginning to be drawn to Jesus. However, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we are told that the crowd is mixed. It's not just disciples, or is it simply an indistinguishable crowd, but a mixed crowd. The evangelist Matthew makes it very clear. Jesus' followers must reside in the crowd, Yet they must remain distinctly different at the same time. There will be enmity between them to the very end. But we must live in the world and not be of the world if we wish to be Christ's disciples. Second, we see that there's a significant mountain. This mountaintop experience gives us reason for excitement, doesn't it? It tells us of why people are being drawn to Jesus. You see, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. And for the first century Jew, a mountain would have been reminiscent of a divine event. They would have thought of Mount Sinai, when God used Moses to give the law. And Jesus recognizes the significance of this crowd being drawn to him. And so in his mercy, he rushes to the mountain to issue his inaugural address of God's new and different kingdom. And third, there is a new and different vision. Jesus casts this strange vision. It's an inaugural address of a sort, much like we might witness upon receiving a new president. But this vision is far more radical than anything that we have heard and seen. In fact, it is otherworldly, isn't it? As Jesus describes the traits of his citizens. In verses 3 to 10, Jesus had been speaking in the third person plural. At this point, it's a grand announcement, a proclamation of people whose happiness overcomes poverty and sorrow, oppression, deprivation, and hunger. But notice how in verse 11, Jesus changes tenses. Jesus' address is not only a general declaration of the character traits of God's new kingdom being established. It is about who Jesus' disciples are. It's about what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. And this is what I want us to focus on. I want us to learn the three things from Christ himself. About what it takes to be one of his disciples. So, first, the first lesson that we are to learn in this passage is that disciples of Christ are preservers. And this is why Jesus says that a disciple of his is salt of the earth. He does not say that they are to be salt as if they are to take up a particular role or part in a theater. Neither does Jesus say that they are to have salt, as if they are to practice or function in a particular ministry of the Christian faith, like preaching and praying or administering the sacraments. Rather, Jesus says that his followers are the salt of the earth. Jesus goes much deeper than any rule or action or service. Jesus speaks to us, our identity. He speaks to our very existence. He speaks to who we are. To be salt of the earth, we are the preserving and the cleansing agents of the world. Indulge me for a moment. Let me just use a Navy example, if I may. When a Navy ship goes into dry dock, it adds 20 to 30 years to the life of the ship. And this is what Jesus says his followers are to be of the, for the world. We are to prolong their existence. We are to be for the world what dry dock is for a ship. Just as one who exercises and eats healthy will add years to their life expectancy, So, do the followers of Jesus increase the life expectancy of the world? We are to be the healthy diet and exercise that improves and prolongs life for the world. Though the world rejects us, we preserve them. As disciples of Christ, we have the cleansing and the savoring properties for the earth that salt has. But Jesus also issues a negative clause, doesn't he, in verse 13. He says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If we lose our saltiness, if our values and our conduct do not remain distinct, then we will become useless to our mission here on earth, won't we, church? We have to remain distinct. We have to live in the world, but not be of the world. You see, we will not bring any sense of preservation to this world. Rather, we will be overcome by the world if we do not remain distinct, if we lose our saltiness. According to Jesus, his followers are not so heavenly minded that they have no earthly benefit. You see, every fiber of our being must find rest in the long awaited Messiah. This is what it takes it takes hungering for Jesus above anything else, hungering for him. Just as if salt were to enter our mouths, we would salivate and thirst. the satisfaction of a single drop of water. And so must we thirst and savor. So must we thirst for the savoring, the cleansing, and the preserving satisfaction of Christ. Child of God, we are to be preservers. For the power of our own preservation is also the preservation of the world. When we are In Christ, we have something to give. When we are preserved, when we are hungering and thirsting for Christ Himself, we are a force of preservation to this world. Second, disciples of Christ are visibly seen together on earth. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Not like light. Or to be light. But you are the light. Being light is more than preaching God's word. Being light is more than frequently receiving the Lord's Supper. Being light is more than having been baptized. To be the light of the world, we are by essence and by sight distinctly different. Jesus changes us from the inside out. He calls us out of this world and into a heavenly city. His disciples undergo a metamorphosis, a change of spirit and substance. Their desires and actions change. But so does their community. You see, we are not just individuals anymore. We are the body of Christ. We are the covenant community. You see, the disciples become distinctly different that even the world sees the change in them. We become the visible community of Christ, just like a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Show me a people who are the light of Christ, and I will show you that they are blessed citizens of Christ's kingdom. They are those people whose character and traits exemplify the Beatitudes. See, as children of light, we cannot hide from the world. It goes against our very nature of being in Christ. Upon hearing of the resurrection, John tells us that the disciples hid for fear of Jews, of the Jews. Just as Jesus busted through that locked door, we are told, where those disciples were hiding, he will bust through the locked doors of our lives. You see, we cannot remain in darkness. We must be exposed as the light of Christ if we be followers of Christ. We must be made visible for all the world to see. how do we practice this? How do we practice being the light of the world? I can assure you it's not simply attending weekly services. No, Christ is calling us to be the visible community of Christ in our daily lives. We are to show Christ in every interaction we have. Christ cannot be our secret, but he must be the witness of all of our relationships. We cannot put Christ in a box. His purpose is not to give us social acceptance or social status in the buckle of the Bible belt. No, His purpose is His Father's glory. and Christ is the witness of our relationships, We will naturally cherish and invest our time and our energy into living into the body of Christ, his church. We will simply live life together with other Christians, enjoying each other's company and cherishing the joy of our salvation. This is what it takes to be the light of Christ to the world. There is no greater strategy for evangelism than this. We practice being the light of the world by being bound together and bound together in love, in Christ, for all the world to see. So let's live with intention and make commitments to interact with one another regularly in love. The only way to do this is to give something up, isn't there? We cannot have our cake and eat it. If we wish to receive this great benefit of this new kingdom and citizenship, then we must give up something. To be the light of the world, we must be children of the cross. We must give up and give over our lives to Christ. Every aspect of them. And this is the essence of those who follow Christ. It is the cross. It is a life that is no longer theirs, but His. And this is why Paul says, For we are crucified in Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives within us. When we give up and surrender, Light penetrates. You see, our good works are unleashed and exposed for others to see and for our Heavenly Father to be glorified. That's what happens when we live under the cross of Christ. Suddenly our good works are unleashed and exposed for others to see. What meaning and purpose this is for our lives You don't have to become some super successful person to have meaning and purpose. The cross provides an immense amount of meaning and purpose in our lives. We don't have to waste our time climbing the social ladder of success. We can have purpose and meaning in our lives under the cross of Christ. give our loving Creator and Heavenly Father praise to inspire others to the goodness of God. That is what the cross of Christ provides. The cross of Christ is not vain and sadistic, but it fills our life with hope and meaning and purpose. For we then give good works to others and glory to God. So what does it take to be the light of the world? It takes the giving up of ourselves, the living, of, in, living publicly and visibly together as followers of Christ with purpose for sharing good works and glorifying God. That's what it takes. It is a costly endeavor. But the work has already been done. We just have to enjoy it if we wish to be the light of Christ. Third. The disciples of Christ fulfill all the law, all of the law of God. How? By being bound to Christ. So here we see the how. We've seen the what? The salt of the earth, the light of Christ. But now we see the how. It's by being bound to Christ. And by being bound to Christ, we fulfill the law. Not independently, but in Christ. No longer does Jesus speak of who we are, he speaks of who he is. In this portion of the text, the disciples are no longer the subject for which Jesus speaks. Christ now speaks of himself. Hasn't he always been doing this? Hasn't this been the case? Certainly he's describing his character and his citizen's character, but now he explicitly speaks of himself. In verse 17, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. Rather, I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus is not telling them to do away with practicing God's law. He is telling them to no longer be enslaved to the law of God. Even good God-ordained things can become idols in our lives. But Jesus is not just good. And he's not just God-ordained. He is God. He can never become an idol. Our enslavement is now to Christ. This is the good news. We are bound to Him. And by that, we are given an infinite amount of mercy and grace. We no longer practice God's law to be accepted. We do it because we have been accepted. Amen? We don't do it to be accepted. We do it because we have been accepted. If we can only just grasp the joy of being accepted, then we might find the delight that we might find what it takes to be the light of Christ and to be the salt of the earth if we can just grasp the joy of being accepted in Christ. You see, being bound to Christ is drastically different than being bound to the law. You see how it is about being bound in love? Christ's love because he first loved us, that we can love him. It's through Christ's love that we receive all these benefits of Christ. Like the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is the Willy Wonka golden ticket to the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Even Pharisees and scribes do not have what it takes to be made citizens of the kingdom of God. The only righteousness that deems those worthy of entering is Jesus himself. The only one who has fulfilled the law and the only one who is perfect love. Jesus. When I fell in love with my wife, I sought to please her. And when we fall in love with our Lord, it doesn't exempt us from obedience, does it? Rather, it inspires us to obediently please Him. He changes not only how we approach God's law, but our very relationship with it. It becomes a joy and a delight. When we are bound in love, we fulfill the law of God in Christ. Why? Why? Because Christ fulfills all the demands of God's law and inspires us to love its protection and its benefits. No longer is it a curse, but an instrument. And this is why the psalmist says, I love the law of the Lord. How could he possibly say that? But that he saw grace and mercy fulfilling the law. You see, when we are bound to Christ, we are bound in love. Love with Him and love with each other. There is hope for this world. There is hope for each and every one of you. There is hope for the person sitting next to you. You see, to be salt and light of the world, it takes a lot. The cost is great. It will take every fiber of your being to preserve the world that rejects you. It will take courage and deep commitment to surround yourself in a community that lifts up Christ, especially when the world and the flesh tells you not to. But when we see all of this through the cross of Christ and the promises that he has for us, We will be encouraged, we will be inspired, yes we will, to carry our crosses. When we cross that heavenly threshold, we will not remember the cost, we will not remember the pain, we will no longer ask ourselves this question, what does it take? Then we will ask another question, how did I make it? My God, my God. How did I make it? You see, it will not be about how much we gave, but how much we gained. We will stand in unconstrained adoration at the one who has not just preserved us as we experience now. we will stand in complete, unconstrained adoration at the one who gives us everything.